We are, we are coming towards the end of this series, an overview of the Bible, maybe three more sermons. And I, honestly, that's probably one of the most important series that I have ever preached, just helping you to see the beauty, the unity, and the coherence of the scriptures. So now we are going to start navigating through the major portions of the Bible. We have seen the structure of the Bible, and now we're going to be looking at the major, how the books fit together. And, and Lord willing, sometime soon we get to Genesis. And it was on purpose, because once you understand how the Bible is placed together, the story of the Bible, that will help you understand Genesis. And the more you understand Genesis, you understand the rest of the Bible. So... May the Lord help us. Would you please open your Bibles to Luke, Luke chapter 24. And I want to invite you to stand up if you can. Here's Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and he's talking to the disciples who are having a hard time understanding the message of the Hebrew Scriptures. And... They cannot see Christ, and they cannot understand what's taking place. Starting verse 25, we hear the Lord Jesus saying, And he said to them, O foolish ones. Wow, Jesus, so harsh. Here's the Lord saying, O foolish ones, and is low of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah, the Christ, should suffer these things and enter into glory, his glory, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, exposed the scripture to them, the things concerning himself. And now let's move to verses 44. Walk through 44 through 46. He says, after appearing to the disciples, he says, Then he said to them, verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You may be seated. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, You have indeed been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were created, before the earth was brought forth from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And we find our shelter in you and you alone. We ask you to speak to us Cover us, hide us, 
in your word. And just like Jesus, you did to the disciples, I pray you do to all of us, open our eyes and help us to behold your beauty, your grace, your majesty in the Old Testament. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. What is a trilogy? A trilogy. A basic definition of a trilogy is a group of three related novels, plays, films, operas, or albums. And the three parts, the three works, they go together. The author, when he's writing a trilogy, he has a purpose and a goal as he's separating the writing or the film into the three parts. And the three parts are very important. If you just read or watch the last one, you will be confused. And if you stay just with the first two parts, you will also be frustrated. It's funny how we understand that with so many things, movies, books, when it comes to the Bible, we kind of don't care about that. And when we think about the Bible as not a trilogy, but a tetralogy, tetra for tetralogy or quadrology with four works, we see how the first three volumes would be the Old Testament. And the last part would be the New Testament. And as we saw with the covenants, if you come to the New Testament, without the first three quarters of the Bible, you will understand very little of what's going on. You can just open to Matthew 1, 1, and read, this is the genealogy, the genesis of Jesus Christ. Who is Christ? Is that his last name? Son of David. Who is David? Son of Abraham. Who is Abraham? And then you go through the genealogy. So you can see just from the beginning that if you miss the first portion of the scriptures, you will have a very superficial understanding of the rest, and especially the New Testament. So my prayer is that as we walk, especially through the Old Testament, that we would grow in our understanding of our God, our Savior, who He is, what He has done, and who we are apart from Him. Amen? Here's the outline of this morning's sermon. We are going to be looking very briefly at the importance of the Old Testament or the Tanakh. Then you're going to see how the Tanakh is verified in the New Testament. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the main message of the whole Tanakh, the whole Hebrew Scripture. And then we're going to start with the Torah. And next Lord's Day we move to the prophets and the Scriptures. And then we go to the New Testament. Okay? So, first of all, the importance of the Tanakh. And the Old Testament, or Tanakh, the Torah, Nevin, Ketuvin, the, the law, the prophets, and the writings, it takes the first three quarters of the scriptures. Uh, just looking at that, you see that if you don't have a good grasp of this part, you're missing a great portion of the whole Bible. So as Jason Derushi says, he writes, The Old Testament makes up the initial three-fourths of our Christian Bible. 
and provides the foundation for a fulfillment and climax manifest in the New Testament, specifically in the person and work of Jesus. The New Testament authors cited or echoed the Old Testament at every turn, and they expected their readers to follow along. That's just briefly how important the Old Testament is and how little attention or little importance we often give to the Old Testament. So, the, the next point here that I want to show you is how the, this structure of the Torah, the prophets, and the scriptures was already going on since the days of Jesus. We believe that earlier than that, but we can see, and I'm not going to spend time giving you, there are many ways of showing this evidence. You have external evidence, Jewish sources that show the, this threefold division, the tripartite division of the Old Testament. But what I want to show you is, is in the New Testament, how the New Testament shows that the Old Testament is not divided as our English Bibles in you remember, you have the law, the historical books, the poetry, and the prophets. But no, the, the Hebrew Bible in the days of Jesus, that's why we call the Jesus Bible, was the law, the prophets, and the writings. The, the first one is in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I, ha- I have come to abolish what? The Torah and the prophets. The law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And law and prophets here is the short for what? The whole Old Testament. In some places, the whole Old Testament canon is just called the Torah or the law of Moses. It refers to the whole Old Testament. Matthew used the expression the law and the prophets frequently to refer to the whole Bible. The other one is the one that we read earlier. And in Luke chapter 24... Verses 25 through 27, we, we hear our Lord Jesus saying, O foolish ones, and is low of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with what? Moses, or the Lord, the Torah, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them what? What? All the scriptures. Do you see? Moses and the prophets is a synonym for what? All the scriptures. That's how it was structured. And then we see in verses 44 through 45 that Jesus adds another portion here. He says, these are my words, verse 44 and 45. I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and what? The Psalms. He adds now, Another portion of the Tanakh. Now the Psalms. And why the Psalms? And the reason is because the Psalms was the first book of the writings. And it's the largest book. And one of the most important books in that portion of the scriptures. So, R.T. Friends, he says, The Hebrew canon consists of three parts. The law, the prophets, and the writings of which Psalms is the first and most prominent uh, book. This this inclusive listing makes it clear that Jesus' post-resurrection teaching 
found its basis not just in the predictive utterances of the prophets, but in the whole gamut of Scripture. So they would add, they would, we, are, we want to be very specific about things. In Hebrew culture, especially back in the day, sometimes just one word would refer to the whole. The first words would refer to the whole. So, oftentimes, you're going to hear just in the law, as it's written in the law, and then he goes and quotes the psalm. Why? Because he's just referring to the whole Bible. Or sometimes he says, as it's written in the prophets, and he quotes a psalm. It's because he's referring to the, to the whole. But that was the basic structure in Jesus' day was the Torah, the prophets, and then this, the writings, beginning with psalm, the most prominent one. One example of how Hebrew is, is that the books in the Hebrew Bible, they receive their title from where? From the first words. We label, we, following the Greek, we, we create Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. No, but if you go to the Hebrew, the title of the book is referred to the first words or one word that's very important in the first sentence. For example, when Jesus, he's on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not a question. It's not that he's being abandoned by the Father there. He's quoting Psalm 22. He's saying, look to Psalm 22. They did not have Psalm 22. There are no chapters. So he would just say the first sentence, and people automatically would go to the whole Psalm, Psalm 22. And you know that Psalm 22 is a Psalm where the Messiah is suffering, but he will get victory. There is vindication. So that's how it works. They did not have the acronym in Tanakh. So Jesus does not say, as it's written in the Tanakh. No, that was much later. Another example is Paul in Romans chapter 10. He also quotes from the Psalms, the Torah, and the prophets to prove his argument, showing the whole Old Testament. Another important passage is in Luke chapter 11. So in Luke chapter 11, we see the Lord Jesus acting as a prophet here, and then he says, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of what? Who? Zechariah. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And people here, especially with the English language, they come and say, oh, do you see it's from A to Z. In English, yes, but that's not what Jesus is saying, because Abel starts with Evel, Zechariah does not start with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, so it doesn't work in Hebrew. What Jesus is referring here is to the first and the last book of his Bible. The first book is Genesis, that's where we find Abel, and the last book of his Bible is what? Chronicles, where you have the death of this prophet Zechariah. So Jesus here is showing how the whole canon would be from Genesis to Chronicles. See how Jesus is applying these three parts of the the scriptures. Another one would be Jesus' baptism. In Jesus' baptism, it seems like the, the words of the Father cover the whole Tanakh. 
When the Father says, you are my beloved Son, with you I'm well pleased. We know that beloved comes from the Torah, that's Isaac, the beloved, the one who you love, the son you love, the beloved one. Son comes from Psalm 2, the Messiah, the son of David. And then you have, in whom I'm well pleased, coming from the prophets, Isaiah. So you have the Tanakh here, the Torah, the Psalms or writings, and then the prophets. The whole testament testifies about Jesus. Just so you can see how we can find support even in the New Testament for this three-part division of the Bible. Another important aspect here is how the Tanakh, once we see how there is this structure, we can see that in the Bible, and then we start looking at this structure, and you see how this structure is very important. Not only the books individually, but when the books are placed together, I believe we can see the main message of the Bible when we look at the Torah, Prophets, Writings. I believe the, the theme of God's presence is demonstrated by how the structure and the themes, the junctures of the Tanakh, teach about the Messiah, the Word of God, exile and Exodus. And you think about the Messiah, he's the key figure. That's why Jesus said they talk about him, the whole Old Testament, because he's the main character there. He will restore God's presence among his people. Then God's people can enjoy God's presence by treasuring his Torah, his word. Think about exile is departure from God's presence, and Exodus is a return to God's presence. So you think about the Messiah, the word of God, exile, and Exodus. All these themes come under the main theme that's God's presence. Why does the Messiah come? Because he's Emmanuel, God with us. He's restoring what was lost. And then he enables us to delight and obey his word. And because we delight and obey his word, he keeps us. He does not send us into exile. So you see how these things fit together. And I'm not the only crazy person to see this. One example is Stephen Dempster. He says that the final shape of the canon stresses what he calls the themes of the Torah and temple, or the divine word and divine presence. Obedience to the word of God leads to, ex to the experience of the presence of God or blessing. Disobedience of that word leads to the experience of the absence of God or curse. And just so you can see, as you put the Tanakh together, there is a clear emphasis on God's presence and then exile from God's presence. When a scholar says, two movements, two movements, either toward or away from the divine presence upon the sacred mountain, define every movement in the Hebrew Bible. And we see that. So, for example, the Torah, the first five books, begins with Genesis and Adam dwelling in God's presence. But remember, Adam sins and there's the exile away from God's presence. And then the Torah ends with Moses is still in exile. He was not able to enter the promised land. That leads to Joshua. That's the prophets. Starting with Joshua, the nation enters the Eden-like land. But by the end of Kings, the middle of the prophets, Israel is already outside the land in exile. And then the last book of the prophets is Malachi. And there is the warning. There is the warning of uh, an exile. If you don't obey the Torah, God will come with curse. 
and then the writings, the, the final block ends, even though we, we see that the people return to the land, by ending with Chronicles, there is this theology that they are still waiting for a better exodus. They still have not received the great promises of dwelling in God's presence as was promised by the prophets. So we see how the structure of the books teaches this whole message, and that's why I believe that Jesus could say that the law, the prophets, and the writings spoke about him. Not only some books, not only some prophecies here and there, but the whole structure, the theme of being God's presence and being away from God's presence because of sin is just the whole reason why Christ comes, to restore us. And then Exodus, Exodus is just like a resurrection. We are dead in sin, away from God's presence, and the Exodus is just similar to a resurrection where we are brought back to life into God's presence. So even the structure of the Old Testament teaches us about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I don't have time to cover this part here, but there is one long story. Hopefully next Sunday I'll cover this, but there is one long narrative, and you can see from the Torah to the first part of the prophets, So from Genesis to Kings, it's one beautiful, coherent, unified narrative. Then we move from Eden to Sinai to Zion, the dwelling of God, until we are expelled back again in Babylon, just like in the beginning of Genesis. But I don't have time to do that. I just want to start covering and walking through the first part of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, or the Law, or the Pentateuch. So those are the three names you're going to hear for the first five books of the Bible. Torah, Pentateuch, that's the five books, or the law. That's how it's translating to English. And that's the foundation of the Christian scripture. Everything else is going to be flowing from the Torah. Everything is flowing from here, from these first five books. And what's fascinating about these first five books, it covers a long time from the creation Look at that, from creation in Genesis 1, or even before, it can, it can, some scholars see as the, even the creations of the heavens of heavens in Genesis 1, 1, to the nation of Israel in Moab waiting to enter the promised land. So you have this vast period of time that's covering, and yet the Torah or the Pentateuch, the, the great emphasis, the weight is on Sinai. That's where the focus is. Here is important. Despite, despite having five different books, the Torah tells one coherent and unified story, the story of a God who opens the way for humanity to dwell in his presence. That's the main theme of the Torah. Uh, Michael Morales, he writes that the Torah, and remember, the Hebrew word Torah is not primarily law, but instruction. And he says, Torah, as instruction on the way of Yahweh, becomes a literary journey to the house of the Lord. So the Torah is basically Psalm 23, where you see the Lord guiding his people into his dwelling place, his abode, to enjoy him forever. So the covenantal presence of God with his people is the heart of the Torah, the first five books, driving the theological plot and also functioning as the interconnecting web 
providing coherence and interconnectedness to all the major theological themes of the Torah. Uh, let me move on. Let's start with the Torah. What is the first book of the Torah? Genesis, yes. So we start with Genesis, and you're going to talk more about Genesis once we start preaching through Genesis. But Genesis, especially chapters 1 through 4, is not only the introduction to Genesis, is not only the introduction to the Torah, it's not only the introduction to the Old Testament, but it's the introduction to the whole Bible. So Genesis 1 through 4 is certainly one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. Because that's the, the entrance to the Scriptures. And the drama of living in God's presence, being exiled from His presence, and how to return to that blessed location begins right there in Genesis 1-4. through 4. The book of Genesis emphasizes the two inseparable themes of the Word and the dwelling of God. God made man by His Word to dwell in His gracious presence, to enjoy His presence, and this enjoyment and dwelling in his presence is only available if man does what? Obeys his law, delights in his Torah, in his instruction. Why, why is Adam kicked out of, of Eden? He rejects the word of God. He takes the word of the serpent. So the word and the dwelling walk together. As man treasures the word of God, he dwells with God. So, we see in Genesis, Genesis begins with life with God in the Garden of Eden and ends in death in Egypt. And Egypt is a symbol of Sheol, of the, the grave. And as you walk through Genesis, you see that there is less and less the appearance of God, of Yahweh. So from the beginning where man is dwelling with God, enjoying his face and delighting his presence in the Garden of Eden, because he disobeyed his word, he's cast out of that place. And then there is this trajectory through Genesis where we come to the end of Genesis and his death, death in Egypt. So, broadly, Genesis moves from the life-giving presence of God in Eden to the death and burial of Joseph in Egypt. That is, from the heights of Eden upon the mountain of God down to Sheol, the grave. And Genesis also, what is very crucial about Genesis is the promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed will come to restore that was lost in Eden. That leads us to what is the next book after Genesis? Yes, Exodus. That leads to Exodus, and Exodus continues the drama of God's presence. So the exile from God's presence brought about through Adam's sin starts to find a resolution with Sinai and the tabernacle. So Morales says there is even a sense where one could read Genesis 1 to Exodus 40 as a complete narrative, a story about being expelled from God's presence in Eden, then finally being brought back into the presence through the tabernacle Sometimes people have a hard time with the word cultus in Latin because we use cult for false teachings. But culto, even in Portuguese, we say, I'm going to the culto, eu vou pro culto, means worship. It's related to worshiping God and, and the liturgy. So that's a, 
when you see cultus, cultus, it's referring not to a cult, but especially here, but to the way of worshiping God. So from Genesis 1 through Exodus 40, a story about paradise lost and regained. So we, we talk about Exodus when we are going through the Mosaic Covenant. So I don't think I need to spend much time here. Uh, the building of the tabernacle is the key to the whole book. His covenant with Israel, I'll be your God, you will be my people. Dwelling with him, Mount Sinai, God is present right there. So the building of the tabernacle is the restoration of God's presence among his people. It is as if Eden has been restored. So for the first time since Eden lost with Adam, when you have the tabernacle, and the tabernacle has a lot of imagery connecting us back to Genesis 1 and 2. The way that the tabernacle is constructed is just a miniature Eden or cosmos. You'd have the, the whole world, creation, and then the Holy of Holies would be similar to Eden. And you finish the book of, what is the next book after Exodus? Leviticus, yes. So once you finish Exodus, it's fascinating how the book of Exodus ends. So you have the tabernacle built, the glory of God comes, but wait a second, no one can enter that place. So we read Exodus 40, verse 35, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now the book of Leviticus will answer who, who is supposed to enter and how he's supposed to enter that holy place, the Holy of Holies, the Garden of Eden once again. So the drum of the tabernacle, when you think about the tabernacle as a representation of the whole cosmos, so the drama, all that's happening with the tabernacle is a picture of what is supposed to happen with the whole cosmos, with the whole world. So as we come to the book of Leviticus, all that legislation that you have in Leviticus might, be, might kind of get boring for some of us if we don't understand the whole purpose there. But all the legislation of Leviticus is not merely offering tedious ritual instruction. Rather, it's narrating a theological story. Leviticus begins with Israel, God's second firstborn son, or second Adam, is standing outside the cherubim guarded, Entry of Eden. That's how the veil was to the tent of meeting. And now who is going to enter that place? Leviticus stands at the heart of the Torah. So you have Genesis, land lost. You have Exodus, a journey to Sinai. Then you have Leviticus. And then you go to Numbers. And then you have Deuteronomy. So Leviticus, as you think about the Torah, Leviticus stands right in the heart, in the middle of the first five books, implying its importance. It's very important to understand. And the center of Leviticus, it's even more fascinating that the center of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. So you have the whole Torah escalating towards that day, the Day of Atonement. And what is the Day of Atonement? God's means to keep his dwelling with his people, clean, cleansing the tabernacle, so he can dwell with his people. So, all the instruction, the Torah, is primarily to enable Israel to dwell in fellowship with the Holy God. The Day of Atonement is the way 
and essence of how the Lord enables sinful man to dwell in his presence. So, Adam, think about Adam, he was able as a high priest to, to dwell in Eden. Now, this is transferred to the high priest. Aaron takes similar the place of Adam, and he will enter the most holy place where God dwells. Uh, I really like what Morales says. He writes, let me go here. On the day of atonement, Adam's eastward expulsion from the Garden of Eden was reversed as the high priest, occultic Adam, ascended westward through the cherubim-woven veil into the summit of the cultic mountain of God. Furthermore, this drama of the garden's re-entry had a theological plot and purpose. And he's quoting another scholar here. He says, Thus he, the high priest as Adam, returns to the original point of creation where he pours out the atoning blood of the sacrifice, sacrifice reestablishing the covenant relationship with God. So, and it's, this picture is also from Morales, and you can see he, he puts, first of all, Eden and the expulsion of Adam from that place. He goes east, and you remember there is the cherubim guarding the garden where you have the tree, and when you reverse that, you come to the Day of Atonement, you have the completely opposite. So now the high priest, he's behaving like Adam, and he's going westward, passing through the cherubims to come into God's presence. So that's just beautiful. When you come to Leviticus 16, and that's the heart of the Pentateuch, the heart of the Torah is just the reverse of the Garden of Eden. What happened with Adam in Genesis 3? Now we have the complete opposite. For the first time, men can come into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, just like Adam did earlier. So, Leviticus provides the means for God to dwell with a sinful people. Sacrifices and atonement. The day of atonement is the day when the tabernacle is purified from Israel's pollution so God could dwell with them. And remember, there were the two goats. One goat was sacrificed, and the other goat was what? Sent away into the wilderness, exiled from God's presence. Uh, it's just beautiful, and the coherence going back. So you see how these books are all placed together. And the Numbers, the book of Numbers is the next one. And the book of Numbers tells the story of how Israel started to be organized as a kingdom of priests. Now they need to be organized as an army, as they're going to march and take conquest of the promised land, the land where God will dwell with them. And the arcs placed right in the center of the the nation of Israel, and all the tribes are placed in very specific locations, especially the tribe of Judah, fulfilling the promise and the prophecy spoken earlier by Jacob, Judah, the king, the lion. So they have a, a crucial place there. Uh, also the importance of the word of God. How is the word of God important in Numbers? The book of Numbers takes the, this name Numbers because of the two senses. Remember, you have two senses in the book of Numbers. The counting of the men. And it's very fascinating because you read one census and then you read the other census. 
And all the names there in the first census are missing in the second census. There are only two men who are remaining in the second census. Who are they? Jacob and Caleb. Why? Because a whole generation perished for not believing the word of God. They will not enter the land of God's dwelling. They refused to obey and treasure the promise of God. Only two men we went. That's why the name is Numbers, because of the numbers of the census. Okay? Uh, and then we move to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the last book of the Torah. It's crucial. It's a very important book. Uh, Moses is bringing, as he's about to die, he's bringing all the instruction that he needs to give to this new generation that's about to enter. So it's a beautiful pastoral, prophetic role that Moses takes here in instructing the, the people of God. Also, the theme of Deuteronomy is the presence of God, as is the option for the nation of Israel between life and death. Remember, Moses says, I'm placing before you life and death. What is life? Eden. Dwelling with God, enjoy his face. What is death? Exile, being cast away from God's presence. So, that's the Torah, the first five books, very briefly. And you see a coherent, unified story of God's presence. He's opening the way for men to dwell with him. And Paul, he says in 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11. You can turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says, verse 8, Now we know that the law is good. And I could say the Torah is good. If one uses it, what? Thoroughly, we could say. Thoroughly. Understanding this, that the Torah is not laid down for the just, but to to the Torah-less. So they see, the message of the Torah is beautiful. It's wonderful. Why? Because it's teaching the completely opposite of what people understand, that you can do those works and be saved. It's actually teaching that God will save his people. God alone can bring people back into his presence, and he will do that through the Messiah. That's the message of the Torah. And we see that by comparing the two major characters here in the Torah, the one who begins and the one who ends the Torah, we have Adam and Moses. Both are covenant leaders of a people. Both meet with God. Both act as royal priests. Both were entitled a land to enjoy God's presence, but both lost that land. So we come towards the end of the Torah, and where is Moses? Where is Moses? Does he go into the promised land? He dies outside the promised land. Just like Adam. They're outside God's presence. We're not able to enjoy. The Torah is good because it teaches us that no matter how awesome someone is, only the Messiah is truly awesome and great. 
able to bring people into God's presence. The solution for the exile is Jesus the Messiah. And when you look at the book of the Torah, the first five books, and I don't have time to do that right now, but the Torah's structure is very important because as you're walking through the first five books of the Bible, it's a long narrative, right? From Genesis to Deuteronomy, it's a long narrative. But there are some key places in this narrative where Moses places poetry, a poem. And most often, these poems and this poetry is related to the Messiah. You can see by Genesis 3, the promise of the seed is in form of poetry. You can read in your Bible and you see how the promise there is in shape of poetry. And there you have the promise of the seed who will come. Then you move to Genesis 49. It's another, what they would call the messianic themes that's holding the Torah together. In Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, we have the poem or the prophecy of Jacob. And it talks about the last days. Genesis 49, 1. In the last days. And he goes on to talk about the Messiah who will come from the line of Judah. And this Messiah will reign through suffering and resurrection. So if you're reading Genesis 49, you come to verse 9 and tells us that the seed of Judah, he says, from the prey, the son shall be raised up. He's already talked about the resurrection of this man from the line of Judah. Following Genesis 3.15, that the seed would conquer through suffering and death. The next major poem or poetry in the Torah is Exodus 15. Right in the context of the Passover. And then you have the song of the sea, Exodus 15. It says that the Lord will reign forever. And we see as they are celebrating Yahweh, Yahweh is a man of war. Look at that. The Lord is a man of war. Jesus comes as a man to wage war against sin. So that poem, that poetry, is prophesying about Christ coming to bring a better exodus. Jesus is the embodiment, the incarnation of the warrior king of Exodus 15, who ultimately conquers the serpent. Remember, Egypt was called a serpent, a snake. Jesus is the one who comes to conquer the true serpent and brings his people in and plant them on God's mountain, just like Exodus 15 says. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So you see these poems placed in the Torah, taking our eyes to the Messiah who will come. The next major portion of poetry is in Numbers. And those are the oracles of Balaam. And Balaam also speaks about the last days, that the Messiah will come in the last days. And Balaam declares that the Messiah will bring a new exodus. Numbers 24, verse 8. He says that the Messiah, Numbers 24, verses 17 through 18, he will crush the head of his enemies. Wait a second. Where was that first promise? Genesis 3.15. Here is Balaam referring to the Messiah coming and crushing the head of the enemies. And like the other prophecies, the Messiah will suffer, die, and be raised. That's Numbers 24, verse 9. 
And then the last major poem or poetry in the Torah is in Deuteronomy, right towards the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32 and 33. In Deuteronomy 32, we have the Song of Moses. And then in Deuteronomy 33, we have the blessing of Moses upon Israel. And it's just, I invite you to go home and read that, read in context. It's just beautiful. Moses is also speaking of the last days. That's the context in chapter 31 of 29. Moses had just spoken about the certainty of the exile and the need of a heart surgery, a heart circumcision, when he moves on to sing a song. And in this song, the Messiah will fight a great battle and provide atonement for his people. That's Deuteronomy 32, verse 44, 42, and 43. And then as the result, right after that, the result is peace in the land. That's Deuteronomy chapter 33. So one scholar says, It is as though the conclusion of the song of Moses with the Lord's defeat of his enemies and atonement for his land, his people, Deuteronomy 32, 43, leads us to a description of Israel living in the land peacefully forever. In Deuteronomy 33, it is as if access to Eden has been reopened. And then you think about the great heart of the Torah, the Day of Atonement, and that's exactly the argument of the author of Hebrews, that Jesus is the great high priest. He is the greater Adam who enters the Holy of Holies not with blood of goats and calves and sheep, but with his own blood to purify a place for his people. So you see how the Torah is beautiful. It's beautiful. It's good. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 46, he says, If you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for Moses wrote about me. So my prayer is that as we walk through the Torah, as we walk through the first five books, just like the disciples on the, re- on the road to Emmaus, do you remember what they say to each other? How their hearts were burning as the Lord was revealing himself in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament. And I pray that as we walk through the Old Testament, the heart, our hearts will be burned with holiness and passion and zeal for our beautiful Savior, beholding the great plan of God since the beginning. Amen? Oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We stand in awe of your plans of salvation, redemption. And we stand in awe of your word, your revelation. Thank you for opening our eyes to behold your beauty. I pray for those here who have not seen you, that you'd open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ. Just in Christ, we have the meaning of life, reason for existence. So help us. Help us to see Christ and glorify His name, Lord. Thank you for this time together when we can ascend the hill of the Lord, worshiping our Savior, worshiping our Father, worshiping the Spirit, Parakletos, who come alongside and strengthen us. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for this church. Thank you for their love towards you, their faithfulness towards you. And I pray that you bless them by giving a desire to see Christ and, and to know Christ.
in all the scriptures. That's all we need, especially in our days, Lord. That's all we need. We need to delight in you in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.